Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love, your love which is our anchor that holds us through the storm. Lord, now as we turn to your word, Lord, may we see something more of that love. May we see something more of that love fully expressed in your Son, Jesus, and what he has done for us. So come and speak to us now in his name. Amen. My wife, Justine, absolutely despises table quizzes. I'm not entirely sure why. The last one we entered, we actually managed to win. Um, But I think it's because she's such a practical person, you know, and she just feels like she's going back to school if she has to sit down and write down answers and things. She likes to get her, her hands dirty. She likes to be doing things. But one of the rounds in that table quiz, and it's questions that often come up in table quizzes, was about phobias about different types of phobias. You know, you got this really long name of a particular phobia and you had to say what it was a fear of. You know, the sort of thing, claustrophobia, fear of small spaces, or arachnophobia, fear of spiders. But usually you get something a little more obscure and maybe somebody smart in the group has studied Latin or something and they can work out what the word actually means and the rest of us are just a little bit clueless. But I came across one this week and I wonder, does anybody know what it is, and I might not be saying it right, so this might be even more difficult than it should be. Ophidiophobia. Ophidiophobia. I'll not spell it. Anybody, anyone want to hazard a guess? Yes, you were paying attention when we were reading the, the Bible earlier. Yes, it's a fear of snakes, and phobias are things which people often say are irrational, but actually some recent um, studies on ophidiophobia have shown that maybe it's not irrational, maybe actually it's a kind of protective instinct, and it's one of the top phobias that's thought that over a third of people have it, whether they realize that they have it or not. But the Israelites had a good reason for suffering from ophidiophobia, and I promise that's the last time I'm going to say that. By all accounts, what we read is quite a strange story. The people complain against God. In doing so, they sin. God then sends poisonous snakes on the people. It literally says fiery snakes, presumably because you felt the sensation of burning when they bit you. They bit the people. Many of the people died. And so they turned to Moses and said, you've got to intercede for us. You've got to pray for us. And he does so. And God provides a way for the people to be healed of their injuries. If they look at this bronze snake that Moses has manufactured, then they will live. And this little story is, is mentioned three times through the Bible. Um, it's mentioned here. It's mentioned in 2 Kings 18, um, when the Israelites actually started to worship this snake. They, they kind of reminisced about the good old days when this snake protected them and they worshipped it. So King Hezekiah had to destroy it because it had become an idol. And then Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. I wonder, and I want us to think this evening about, well, why, why does Jesus talk about it? In one sense, the connection is really simple. Jesus says it himself, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked on the bronze serpent lifted high on the pole and they were healed, so we look in faith on Jesus Christ, 
lifted high on the cross, and we're saved from the punishment of our sin. And that's a great truth, and we can rejoice in it. But I think if we're to fully understand what Jesus is saying and and what it means for him to have been lifted up on the cross, then I think we maybe need to delve a little bit deeper into the story of Numbers 21 to get a real sense of how it points us to Jesus. And firstly, I think it's clear that God punishes sin. God punishes sin and desires repentance from his people. Back to Numbers 21 and verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. It's funny. First they say there's no food, and then they say the food is worthless. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. It's becoming a bit of a pattern for the Israelites, isn't it? Last week, we saw that after the report of the spies who'd been sent to look into Canaan, they complain in Numbers 14 verse 2, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they rebelled. And here we are, a generation on, still not in the promised land, Instead, they're in the dry, hot desert, years into their journey. And this little story is actually at the end of what's sometimes called a murmuring series or a series of murmuring stories where God's people wonder if God is really leading them at all. They're tired and they're cranky. They become impatient about their destination. Their journey seems to have caused them nothing but trouble, and one thing after another has happened that has been difficult. And the further they go into the wilderness, it seems as well, the more romanticized a view they have about the time that they were slaves in Egypt. They've longed for the good old days, or so it seems, when at least they had food to eat. Of course, they don't mention the oppression and the abuse that they endured as slaves, but the focus becomes on a lack of supplies and danger that they're facing now as they travel across the desert. The scene is set and the times are hard, the people are on edge, they're at odds with one another and with their leaders, they're not even making sense in their confusion because they say there's no food and this food's no use. And if you You can imagine if this was on TV, there would kind of be creeping music in the background. This is building up to something even worse. Bring on the snakes. So why did God send snakes on his own people? That might seem a bit extreme. Surely a loving God wouldn't do such a thing. But we get our answer, I think, in verse 7, when the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. The people had sinned, not just by complaining to Moses, but they offended God with their sin. Notice the similarities between this story and the very first human sin in the Garden of Eden. Both involved human beings questioning God's provision for them. In the Garden, did God really say you couldn't eat this? And here, well, there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food that God has given us. 
Ironically, it was the snake that caused Adam and Eve to sin, but here the snake is the punishment for the people. There are just some things in this life that we shouldn't ignore. Uh, a little while ago, I got up one day and I felt a little bit of pain across my chest, you see, and uh, across, the, across my back a little bit, and it felt muscular, and I just thought that I'd picked up the children the wrong way or something, and I'd just hurt myself, and so I, I just thought I'd done something silly, and I ignored it, and I thought it would go away by itself. Don't worry, this story doesn't have a drastic ending or anything. <laughs> But I ignored it, and, and later that day, Justine and the girls and myself went to one of those indoor soft play areas, and I had the responsibility of supervising Anna, which isn't the easiest task in the world. And I mean, I'm not the fittest person that you'll ever meet, but I'm not that unfit, really. And at the end of it, I was struggling to catch my breath, and I was sore, and I thought, what's going on here? I just thought, no, I've just aggravated it. It's okay. I'll be all right. And, and I just kind of ignored it. But Justine wasn't happy. And later that night, when I wasn't really doing anything, I thought, this is really sore. But I was still in denial. I, I thought, it'll go away. But Justine made me phone the out-of-hours doctor. And they weren't a bit interested in seeing me. Can you get to A&E? You shouldn't drive. Do you have somebody who'll take you? And, and you know, if you need to phone 999 on the way, that's fine. And I thought, keep your hair on. I've just, I've just pulled a muscle. Now, I should say, I, there's no dramatic end to this story. After various tests and heart traces and chest x-rays, I was absolutely fine, and I was told it probably was muscular pain. But there were two attitudes to my condition. There was mine, which was, oh, it's nothing, it doesn't matter, I'm all right, I don't need help, I'll be okay, I'll sleep it off. And then there was the attitude of the out-of-hours doctor. Get this scene to right away. Don't delay this is serious. This is important. If we hear the words pain and chest in the same sentence on the phone, you've got to get this scene too. And sin is incredibly serious. It can't be ignored, but we have a tendency to belittle it, to say, oh, it's not that bad. And whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you're not yet even, sin is a serious issue. We have a real tendency to be like me, the stereotypical man, not going to the doctor. I'm all right. It's fine. I've never done anyone any harm, really. I'm not that bad. I wonder how you rate your own sin. Maybe that's an uncomfortable question. Maybe you think it's not too bad, or maybe you realize that, well, it's bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so or as some of those people out there. Or maybe you know that it is really quite bad. But the big issue with our sin, no matter what we think of it, is that it's first and foremost sin against God. All sin offends a holy, righteous, just, and eternal God, and all sin deserves a holy, righteous, just, and eternal punishment. The Israelites sinned against God once again as they complained about the food that God was providing. And if we focus on that offense by itself, we might not understand what's followed. But when we realize that it was a sin against a holy God, it might be easier for us to see that God's judgment was right. It was just. And he showed them, and boy did he show them, the magnitude of their offense against him when he sent snakes into the camp. They'd sinned against God. They'd violated the covenant that they'd made with him at Mount Sinai. And he was just in punishing them. 
When we think about our sins, we might focus on the sins ourselves, and we might even focus on the other people that we hurt, and we might think if we kind of make reparations with them that that that's the end of it. But all sins, in doing all of those things, even if they don't seem to harm anybody else, we're choosing something else over God. All of them are acts of rebellion against our Creator. And it's so serious because the ultimate consequence of sin is death, physical death, yes, spiritual death, and eternal death. Spiritual death is the separation of a person from God, and it continues in a permanent state when someone dies apart from the reconciling work of Christ. The ultimate consequence for sin is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And it's, it's just Romans 6 and 23 says that the wages of sin is death. And what do you do to get a wage? Well, you have to earn it. And the truth is that by sinning, we actually earn death. It is due to us. God was clear to Adam and Eve in the garden that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And the type of death that resulted from the fall in Eden wasn't only physical death, but spiritual death. That separation of a person from God, something that would continue in a permanent state without Jesus Christ reconciling us back to God. When he defeated death through his own death on the cross. But this isn't all really doom and gloom because the snakes that God sent brought about his desired result, which was repentance, the people turning back to him. Just like the Israelites, the first thing we need to do to repent of sin is to confess that we've sinned against God. That's the first thing that they did. We don't try to hide anything, but we have to lay bare before Him what He already knows, what we have done, and acknowledge our damaged hearts. True repentance begins really with agreeing with God that we've sinned and that it's serious. We have to take responsibility, in a sense, for our sin. We have to agree with God that what we have done deserves death. But if that is still glum and depressing, it's worth remembering this. God is just and will punish sin, yes, but He is also gracious and will provide a way of salvation. God is just and will punish sin, but He is also gracious and will provide a way of salvation. And while God punishes sin and desires repentance from His people, Here in Numbers 21, God provides an intercessor to appeal on behalf of his people. Back to verse 7. Pray to the Lord, this is the people speaking, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses' role here, not for the first time, was as God's intermediary and as an intercessor for God's people. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he'd raised up a deliverer, Moses, who had brought his people out of Egypt. And from the start, Moses was the intermediary, that person between God and the people, and also the intercessor, the one who represented the people before God. And whether it was a promise of salvation or giving laws or a message of condemnation, God spoke to his people through Moses. But it was two-way. Moses also spoke to God on behalf of the people. 
You might recall the golden calf incident when God was going to destroy the people and Moses went up and pleaded on the people's behalf that God wouldn't destroy them. At times, Moses, it seems, had done this off his own bat, but here the people asked him to do it. They knew that they had sinned. They recognized God's judgment. They understood that Moses was able to plead for grace and mercy on their behalf. And in a similar and in an even greater way, God has revealed himself and his plan of salvation through the perfect intermediary of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our intermediary and our intercessor. Through faith in him, we've been delivered from slavery to the oppressive slavery of sin and death. But do you notice something in this story? And it might jump out at first. God actually doesn't answer the prayer of the Israelites in the way that they wanted. They asked Moses to intercede so that God would take the snakes away. But God doesn't do that. We're never told that God actually takes the snakes away. They're still there. God responded unexpectedly to the prayer of the intercessor. At their request, yes, Moses interceded and God responded. But he provided a way for them to be saved from the sure death that followed being bitten. A bronze snake lifted up on a pole. And just as the snakes didn't actually go away for the Israelites, so even when we have been forgiven, we still face trials and temptations on a daily basis. We still sin on a daily basis. So Jesus, similar to Moses with the Israelites, continues to intercede for us with the Father. Remember two weeks ago, he is our great high priest. That's what he's doing now. He's praying for us. And as our intercessor, every time we sin, Jesus declares that sin forgiven by his sacrifice. He still has the marks on his body. He points to his righteousness that covers us, and he reminds the Father of his promise of eternal life. Of course, it would be the ideal if we didn't sin, and that is what we strive for, even if we fail. John wrote in his first letter in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All sin deserves death, physical and spiritual separation from God. Most often, physical death is not an immediate consequence of sin, although it was here in Numbers 21, for some people at least. God was still present with his people, but their faithlessness had brought a painful consequence. But God responded to them in grace and provided a mediator. God is just, and he will punish sin, but he's also gracious and will provide a way of salvation. And so finally, God provides a way of salvation through faith for his people. Numbers 21 and verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Then John 3 and 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Imagine being in that Israelite camp. You've complained with everybody else, 
I met somebody a couple of weeks ago, and um, he's a man, and he's in his 70s, and he wouldn't mind me saying this. He's, he's not connected to Ravenhill in any way. He said, you know, but John, I'm an old man, and I do like a bit of a complain. And he, he just said, you know, it's one of the great things about growing older. He said, you get to complain, and you get to enjoy it. Um, so I don't know if that's anybody's experience or not, but that was his experience. He said it with a big smile on his face. But imagine being in the middle of this camp. You've complained about your travels and your daily portion of manna that you don't like with the rest of the community. And then a snake slinks up behind you and sinks its fangs into your leg. And in that instant, you recognize that you've moved from life to death. This is serious, and it has become very serious very quickly. It's just a matter of time before your transition from life to death is complete. But then you hear Moses cry out, look up at the bronze snake and live Look and be healed. And you think to yourself, how will looking at a bronze snake heal me? That's ridiculous. And as little sense as it makes, it it makes even less sense for it to be a snake. I mean, how will looking at anything save me? But even less so, a snake, that's the thing that caused my death. But in this moment, you have a choice. You can either listen to your own reason and stubbornly try and find another way and die, or you can put your faith in God, heed the word of God through his prophet, and look up at the serpent and live. God provided a way for the Israelites to be saved from the sure death that followed being bitten. A bronze snake lifted up on a pole. Very, very ironic. The object of their punishment was also going to be the object of their deliverance. Even back then, people knew of this kind of irony of snakes. They knew that snakes contained both deadly venom and also the anti-venom to combat it, otherwise the snake would die from its own venom. Both are contained within the snake. And like the Israelites, our sin deserves death. But God, in His unending grace and mercy, has given us an intercessor who would also be not just our intercessor, but the object of our deliverance. Salvation from death was possible for the Israelites, but it wasn't effective. It didn't happen until they looked at the snake on the pole. Similarly, Jesus was lifted up on a cross to pay the punishment deserved because of our sin. But until we look at him in faith, we still remain dead and condemned in our sin. But we look to Jesus not only to be spared death, but also to experience life as God intends. But to do that, we have to look at him and believe and see, like the Israelites, the object of our sin. This is mysterious how it happens, but the New Testament teaches that Jesus actually became sin on our behalf. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus was lifted up Like that serpent on the pole, he was lifted up on a cross. And that word lift up that Jesus uses, it's used by, in relation to Jesus twice in the New Testament. One is to describe him being lifted up on the cross. 
And the other we actually read a couple of weeks ago in Acts 2, when he's lifted up into heaven as he enters eternity. And the two are connected. One leads to another. Jesus said that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, may enter that eternity for themselves. So as we look to the cross, as we look to Jesus lifted up in our place, we we see our sin. We see it punished in him. We see justice done and our sins getting what they deserved. And as we look to the cross and as we see it and as we believe it, we receive eternal life. If you've never done this before, but you know that your sin needs to be dealt with, then look to Jesus and look to the cross and see your sin dealt with. Believe and receive eternal life from him. But friends, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 2, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. He doesn't say, well, you received Jesus one way, but now continue to walk in a different way. No, just as you received him, so continue to walk, continue to live in him. Now, let me be clear. When we trust in Jesus and when we look to the cross for the first time, our sins are forgiven, and that's a one-time event. Our sins are dealt with. We don't have to live with the guilt and shame of our sin anymore. It's done. We look to the cross, and we see him lifted up in our place, getting what we deserved, and justice is done. And we see it, and we believe it, and we receive eternal life. But the snakes are still here. Even though we believe it and we are God's people and we are saved and we have a way of salvation, we stumble and sin. What do we do then? What do we do when we're condemned by the weight of our sin? Well, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus who died in our place, who was lifted up, and we see it punished in him. We see justice done and our sins getting what they deserved. And as we look to the cross and as we see it and believe it, We rejoice in the knowledge of having eternal life. And in one sense, we're set free from our sin again. The sin was dealt with once, but so often we forget. So often we wonder. There's no new way. There's no secret code after you've been a Christian for a while. We do mature in our faith, but the object of our faith does not change. We look to the cross. We look to Jesus lifted up in our place. We see our sin we see it punished in him. We see justice done. And as we see that and believe it and rejoice in it, we have eternal life. God is just and will punish sin, but he is also gracious and will provide a way of salvation. God is just. And for those who believe in him, he has punished their sin in Jesus Christ. And he has been gracious and he has given us a way of salvation. One scholar, uh, Elizabeth Webb, has put it like this. Speaking of Christians, even in our worst failures and disappointment, God provides healing for our wounds, relationship for our loneliness, and faithfulness for our faithlessness. God doesn't remove the sources of our suffering. The snakes are still there. But he makes the journey with us, providing what we most deeply need if we but look in the right direction. The old hymn says it, doesn't it? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We need to look to Jesus to be free from that burden and the guilt 
of sin. I want to finish just by pointing you to a song. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. It's not a particularly new song, but it's one that I only came across in the last year or two um, by Graham Kendrick. And it's something that's true for, for people who don't believe, who come to the cross for the first time, but it's also true for us as Christians. We can know nothing. We can't know peace within. We can know no freedom from sin until we look to the cross of Jesus. I just want to read to you the, the last verse. How can I live day by day? Lead me to the cross of Jesus, following his narrow way. Lead me to the cross of Jesus. Our God provides for us. He has provided for us in dealing with our sin, and he provides for us day by day if we look to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. And as we think about the cross, as we look to it this evening, Lord, we recognize that that was our place. That was our sin. We should have hung and suffered there. But he did. Because of your love for us and his love for us, he went to the cross and he bore our sins. Lord, so that we could look on him as he was lifted up there. And as we believe in him so that we could live. Lord, we pray that you would help us all in the daily struggle against sin. Lord, we know that we stumble and we sin every day, and if we think about it, we feel the condemnation of that pressing in. But Lord, thank you that we can know freedom from sin by the cross. Thank you for the love which took Jesus to the cross, and Lord, would you show us the freedom that we can have in him. Lord, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert and those people could be freed from the consequences of our sin. Lord, help us always to look to Christ, always to look to his finished and perfect work on the cross on our behalf. And so, Lord, help us to live for you in the light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.